The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. If you're like me today, it's, uh, it's just a little bit of a challenge of a day. I, I worked out in the yard all day yesterday, and my back is just about killing me. So I'm going to have a seat here this morning. But like the rest of us, all of our teams lost yesterday, it seems like. Yeah, the Braves lost last night. Auburn lost. Can I hear an amen to that? Georgia Bulldogs lost. Yeah. I'm not even going to mention Georgia Tech, Steve. Now, here's the thing about that. Some today are wanting to use that as a reason. You're victim, it seems, because your team lost. You know, I thought about that. We, we have become such a culture of victimhood, haven't we? We've become an incredible culture of victimhood. When, when I thought more about the passage that we looked at last week where Adam and Eve had sinned against God, had, had disobeyed Him, do you remember what happened? Eve didn't want to take responsibility, and she blames it on the serpent that had tempted her. Adam didn't want to take responsibility. He throws Eve under the bus, and as I said last week, for 930 years, I'm sure she did not forget that event. And, and then Adam, in the same verse, not only did he blame the woman that had been given to him, he blamed God for giving him that woman. No husband should say amen to that statement this morning. But I, I, I thought about that. This culture of victimism that we see present today began all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It, it seems to be that it's prevalent that, that we want to hold on to things that seem to have happened or may have happened and quite frankly did happen in many of our lives beforehand. We have a tendency to blame our sin or our failures on someone or something else. I can't help it if I'm that way. My mama was. Well, you don't know the daddy that raised me. You don't understand the, the woman or the man that I have to live with. You have no idea what happened to me in that church. I'm meddling now, right? It seems that from legislatures to lawyers, we all seem to be a victim of something else. Uh, from the CEO to the assembly line worker, we always want to blame our failures or our sins on someone else. From theologians even to presidents, it's always somebody else's fault. And I'm just a victim of what they did. Am I getting it right in the culture today? Oh, children, I'm sorry. Children, the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. You're dismissed to go with Miss Vicky. All right.
Thank you, Donna. I thought we had a Pentecostal in the crowd this morning. Here it is when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in an instant, in the bat of an eye. We can even begin to see the indications of sin where they immediately go to play the blame game and cause someone else to be the cause and the reason for their sin. They had not known this thing of sin prior to disobeying God. And instantaneously, they began to die physically and they died spiritually immediately. All of that blessed fellowship that they had with God in the garden had now been broken And it seems as though since that time forward, not only were their relationships with each other strained, but now their relationship with God had been severed and they're cut off in that. And from that day, we see all of the course of history playing that out. That is still going on. It's still there. It's been that way throughout the course of history until that day that Christ God himself went to the cross to bear our sins and the punishment and the payment for our sins and the consequences of our sins when he shed his blood on the cross. You see, when I think about a victim culture, uh, the, the, the cause of our victimhood is because of the sin and our failure to want to acknowledge our sin or our own failures. And the one that did not deserve to be a victim at all was Jesus, and he was the greatest victim of all of history because on him were placed our sins where there was no cause or where there's no reason that we he would have. But he voluntarily became a victim for you and I on the cross. Can you thank him for that? I think about this, and I've thought about it more since last week, and we talked about it. And for the believer especially, we have no reason to live in the past and be victims of the past. If I read my Bible correctly, and if we read who we are in Christ and know who we are in Christ, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, he says that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Amen? The, the, the other verse that we see placard in the end zone on football games is Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Can anybody tell me what that is? I can do all things through Christ. Unfortunately, it's misapplied in that. Let me tell you, I am never going to run a 4-240, right? So I don't care how much I try to will it. I don't care how much I to wish it. I don't care how much I try to hope it. I will never run a 40-yard dash in four. Well, I'll never run it in 10 anymore. But in context, Paul is talking to believers there in the light of his sufferings, and he's putting in context that he's suffering in prison, and he says, I can do all things through Jesus Christ. And so the reality is, for the believer, we have had a new life, a changed life, and a transformed life. We have the Holy Spirit of God residing in us. We have the Word of God that works effectually in us. And we no longer have to be victims, but now we're victors in Christ. Here in this passage where we're going to look at this morning, there were some consequences of their sin. First of all, we want to look at the curse that took place in verses 14 and 15. Follow along with me there. 
To the Lord, the serpent, or to the, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Now, what was it he did? He tempted Eve. He deceived Eve. He misquoted the word of God. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, the thing we see here is that what we believe that this serpent probably was upright at that time, that God's curse on him was that he would crawl on his belly for the rest of his entirety and all that would follow him and he would eat the dust of the earth. We believe that that serpent was that thing that we hate to see in our yard and that is a what? Snake. Isn't it amazing how snakes just freak everybody out? I had two snakes that I located in my yard this weekend. One was a little bitty garden snake, and the minute I blew the bluer and it, and it came out from the leaves, it was a snake that withered out, and my, my immediate response was, whoa, until I realized it was a harmless gardener snake. The other snake Sandy and I found was in our front yard, and it was a dead copperhead. Thank God it was dead. But snakes just freak us out, don't they? I had a good friend, Wayman, uh, that used to always say when you'd ask him what kind of snake it was, he always said, a cobra. <laughs> but he cursed him. But, but the greatest curse that comes from this is the curse that God pronounced on Satan because of what he had done to humanity. Not only to humanity, but to God himself. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, there will be enmity between your offspring, those who are child, children of the devil. Jesus made it very clear that some are children of the devil, right? You're either one or the other. You're a child of God or you're a child of Satan. No in-between, right? He says, I'll put enmity there between you and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now, her offspring was what he was proclaiming as the first gospel that he would send through Mary, that offspring that would be the redemption of the world. And between him and Satan, there would be adversarial battle, if you will. And on that day, you will bruise his heel, referring to when Jesus hung on the cross. But I'm telling you what, you might bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. Amen? And it was through Christ's death, the shedding of his blood, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection that we see this first prophecy of the gospel all the way back in the garden that God had a plan to redeem man, and he didn't leave man in that state. Aren't you glad that God did not leave Adam and Eve in that state? But he made a plan so that he had a plan before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us, Jesus was slain. It wasn't a plan be for God. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't, oh, well, I messed up on the first one, so now I've got to figure out a plan. God knew before he ever created Adam and Eve what would take place, and God had already foreordained that there would be a plan to save you and me through his son, Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? He says again, you'll, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. 
I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and he's speaking to those who have become believers, trusted Christ. He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So not only has Christ conquered him, not only did Christ crush him, but the promise is there for you and I as a believer is that he does not have to have rule and reign and authority over our lives because of the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, his resurrected death, we now can have victory over him. Can you say amen to that? Some of you stayed up late watching the game. Folks, this is exciting stuff that he has given us the same victory over the enemy that Christ has because we are in Christ. We do not have to be victim to him. He says, we'll soon crush him under your feet. Here, here in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, preceding that verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus was referring to there was when Moses was in the wilderness with the children of Israel and they had sinned against God, they began to grumble against God and the serpent had bitten them as they would sin against God. And Jesus is saying, listen, just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent that God told him to make, the one that looks at the son who is lifted up on the cross, he will be healed and death will no longer have sting over in victory in his life. He will not suffer the second death. You see, the children of Israel, as they had sinned against God, God it had to judge their sin. And they pled to Moses, and they said, Moses, would you, would you please ask God to stop? And so Moses goes to God, and he, and he has a conversation with God, and God says, I want you to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on a stick, and I want you to lift it up. And so that everyone who sins would look upon the serpent, and they would not only be spared from death, but they would be also have healing and victory in that. And in that camp, there was no one who had sinned, just like you and and I, just like the world, Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And we've all sinned against God. But I love this. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God had a plan. Paul elaborates on that plan in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 that he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, he was he was born with a different nature than you and I were, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He did not have a sin nature. He lived his whole life fulfilling all of the law, righteous in every way, not even a thought of sin. You and I can't go five minutes without a thought of sin. Amen? If you said you can, you just sinned. <laughs> but foreshadowing that, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And the reality is, is that when Jesus was there on the cross 
and all of our sins were laid on him, that he became a sin offering. He took our sins on him so that we might also be forgiven and saved. Galatians chapter three thirteen. Did what the law could not weaken by the flesh, by sending his son, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then I love this verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. You see the picture there in Numbers chapter, chapter 21 when God is giving Moses those instructions to lift up the servant is that no matter how horrible the individual had been bitten... No matter how many times the person had been bitten by the snake, no matter how sick they were as a result of their bite, no matter the level of toxicity, there was nothing that could keep them from being healed and delivered from death. If they looked on the serpent, and Jesus symbolized as that, there's no sin, no number of sins, no degree of sin, no degree of toxicity of sin, that if a person looks on the crucified Christ, and places their trust in him, they will be healed and they will be delivered from that consequence that took place in the garden. Thank him for that. I don't know where you are today. You may be here this morning and and maybe you became a churchgoer because there was something in your past that you did that you somehow wanted to get some absolvement of that. And he thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just get connected to a church and maybe I'll make church attendance a regular thing. Maybe I'll become an usher. Maybe I'll become a choir member. Maybe I'll become a deacon. Maybe I'll teach a Sunday school class. But you have never looked upon Christ to trust his shed blood for your salvation. Can I tell you, there is no way other than through the blood of Jesus to the Father in eternal life. No matter what that thing is that you may have done in the past, God, by His grace and His mercy, will save you if you look upon Jesus and trust what He has done for your salvation. You see, the opportunity for salvation was there in the desert, just as the opportunity for salvation is here for everyone. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Yet to forgive me, I can't help but think of this song. There is a fountain filled with blood Drawn from Emmanuel's vein And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. Sing it with me, lose all. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. The question is, have you been plunged? Have you plunged in Emmanuel's veins? 
have you once plunged in his veins and, and yet forgotten that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness and sin? Be reminded that that is the only thing that will do it. I, I find it interesting in this passage <laughs> that God cursed the serpent and Satan, but he judged Adam and Eve. <laughs> you know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of mercy and grace. You see, you have not been cursed because of your sin. We are judged because of our sin, but not cursed. The one that was cursed is he that hung on the tree for us. And somebody asked the question, well, why did God judge Adam? I mean, couldn't he have just said, sorry, That was a foul ball. I'm going to give you another chance. You see, if God had done that, however, then God would not be God. Because God is holy and God is righteous. And because God is holy and God is righteous, He must judge sin. His love for... Humanity does not negate His holy righteousness and judgment. But He must judge sin, but God in that has provided a way that you and I can trust Him, have salvation in Him where our judgment has been taken out on Christ, and now we stand righteous in His presence because of the blood of Jesus. Let's look at his judgments, however, though. There were consequences to his sins. Look at verses 16 and 19. He says to Eve first, he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In childbearing you shall bring forth children. And all the mothers said, Amen. It would be a constant reminder, if you will. And not only in that childbearing, the child coming, but in, in the pregnancy there would, be, there would be anguish and misery as well. Can I say in parentheses though, having had a wife that's had two children, I suffer some of the consequences of that too. <laughs> right? I just got myself in trouble. But that leads us to the last part of the verse. He says, now to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. You see, that was not the intention before sin. And I think that is where we get this ongoing age thing that we call the battle between the sexes, right? There's that thing that goes there. And the reason for that goes all the way back here to the garden. There's no amount of legislation that's going to change that. There's no amount of man-made equality that's going to try to, that can change that. That is ingrained as a part of the judgment. Only until Jesus returns will that be rectified. Amen? 
he goes on here to Adam now, to Eve. He is, he is given that. But, but let me point out one other thing. But even in his judgment to Eve, there is grace that's displayed because he tells her, you'll bear children, and the one that is my hope of promise of redemption, it's going to come through your line, Mary, uh, Eve. And so there is that giving and there's that hope in that. And can I say that there is always hope and there's always grace in the judgments of God. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, work was not the cur- work was not the judgment, because we saw before the fall, Adam had stuff to do. As a matter of fact, work is a gift from God. Amen? But in it, he says, you will have turmoil and toil and from the sweat of your brow. How many of you guys get home in the afternoon and go, oh my goodness, what a day. You're retired, and you stay home with Mary all day. You can't say that, huh? (laughs) He did this to me. (laughs) The relationships at, at work sometimes become difficult. Why? Because relationships are difficult because of the fall in the garden. The stress and the overbearing, and it seems sometimes that we never can be content in what we do, right? It's a consequence of the fall. And it's a reminder to us as a result of that, this was the judgment that God had brought. Now, I want us to see, though, in closing, that that there is incredible grace in God's judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment, the Bible says. Aren't you glad? That mercy triumphs over judgment? You see, we get the idea that sometimes that God is just itching and waiting to give judgment. No, He he desires that none should perish, but all come to eternal life. If mercy didn't triumph over judgment, you and I would not be seated here, those who are born again in relationship to God through Christ. But it was because of His mercy He saved you. Look at what it says in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, which means living, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? When they recognized they were sinned, they tried to cover their body. They realized that they were naked and they covered their bodies with leaves, right? Same thing that we try to do. 
when, when we sin, as unbelievers or believers, it seems to be that we want to try to cover our sin by our own efforts. Folks, we can't do it. If I'm trying to clean up my life, my life will never get clean. If I'm trying to change patterns in my life, my life will never change in my own effort. It requires God by the Holy Spirit, Christ living his life through us. There's nothing we can ever do. And so God has to take two as innocent animals, showing, foreshadowing that there is only forgiveness in the shedding of blood. And he sacrifices these animals as an, an atonement, a covering over temporarily for their sins, foreshadowing what would come in Christ. And he clothed them in garments. And they would always remember an innocent animal had to be slain in order to give a temporary covering for their sins. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the shedding of blood of bulls and goats is never enough to atone for our sins, but it's only by the shedding of the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the animal, if you will, in that figure that would come, that would shed his blood so that your sins and my sins might be forgiven. And the Bible tells us in Galatians that now we are clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Notice what he does in verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, the word there really is, drove them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed cherubim, angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, God in His grace and His mercy had to drive them literally from the garden. And He had to place angels there, cherubim, that would guard the entrance into the garden so that they could not come back in and eat of the tree of life. Because if they were able to eat from the tree of life, they would continue to live perpetually and they would live in that sin state, never having a hope of redemption. And so God saw to it that they were not allowed back in because God knew that there would be coming a day that He was going to send His Son, Jesus, that the only means that whereby we might be saved, would live a sinless life, would willingly die on the cross, shed his blood for you and I, become sin for us as a sin offering so that you and I might have everlasting life. He would be buried and he would be raised again from the dead, conquering and defeating death so that we will live eternal life with him. Thank God for that this morning. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.